I love the gathering of the church. There is something, yes, yes, you can and do experience God's glory and his presence in your home, but there is no replacement for the gathering of the church. It calibrates our lives to the presence of God. Really is, this really is all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I've been preparing, not just for what I'm going to share today. We're going to be in Genesis 2 and 3 today. I'm going to kind of wrap up the idea of the story. And then next week, I'll, I'll jump a little bit more into practicals of our work. And even though I'm talking about kind of a boring topic... it's couched within a framework that I believe wholeheartedly if the church really gets it that there is great revival on the horizon and that framework is what it means for you and I to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven and our whole lives to be surrendered to Jesus and in that surrender his life is manifested in us and through us in the world. The days need to be over that we just compartmentalize our spirituality to a certain portion of our lives, keeping Jesus on the periphery of our lives. Those days need to be over. And there's people who are all in all parts of their journey. And I, I recognize that even in a, a gathering like this, that everybody's on a different place in their journey in relationship with Jesus and wherever you are in that journey my prayer is that we are a church that helps you just take the next step to not try to push you and shove you too far or try to condemn you for where you are that's ungodly and we're not going to do that but I do want to challenge you maybe a little bit of inspiring you but equipping you to live your whole life in surrendered submission to King Jesus. I've been meditating and reading through Colossians because a series that I'll do in the fall where we'll go through the book of Colossians and I'm trying to organize the weeks and one, one or- order only gave me four weeks in the book of Colossians and you just need to know that's not enough. <laughs> but what I've been meditating on and rereading Colossians over and over is just how central Jesus is to everything. It is, it truly is all about Jesus. And when the church really, not just realizes it, but lives in that reality, we will see really heaven touch earth in that group of people. And that's my prayer as a church. We're continuing through understanding our work, our labor, our, you might call a natural vocation, uh, my intent in this is as the economy unlocks, people go back to work and, you know, 20, 20-something percent of people being out of work, going back into finding a new job. I want, I want us to see all of this through a biblical framework, uh, through the scriptures, and not just trying to revive an economy that's in a recession Uh, Though that might have its value and be good, uh, to me it's pointless if we don't see the expansion of the kingdom of God. And does the kingdom of God have anything to do with economy? I think so. Um, But we get a choice. Do we live uh, with 
keeping God on the side and then the world should just run like the world should run and get our economy back at all costs? Or do we as citizens of the kingdom of heaven don't just bide our time waiting for another time and place but actually live as citizens who infiltrate the kingdoms of this world for the kingdom of heaven and be touching points of heaven on earth? And to do that, you have to see. I I just want you to see. And anytime I can take you back to Genesis 1 through 3 is a good time because I can, the the whole Bible is in these these three. And I'll, I'll, we will end in Revelation 22, but trust me, we will jump from Genesis 3 to Revelation 21. Uh, We won't go everything in between, even though that'd be fun, just not today. So work. Uh, If we're going to see work, and before I can get in, you know, four points or three points of how to see your work and and start cherry-picking scriptures to try to show you some things, I wanted you to see the story. And I laid the groundwork for that story in Genesis 1 in God's design for work, and that work work is a part of how we image God. Humans are image-bearing creatures, and our our ultimate vocation is to image God in the world. And when we understand what it means to be made in the image of God and live as the image of God, then we can see God's purpose for humanity. The image of God is not something we have and can lose. It's something we are, and we are either living as a witness of that or it's distorted and broken. And part of that image is work. And when we looked at Genesis 1 in God's design for work and what God, what was God's work? Who was the first worker in the scriptures? It was God. And if, and if mankind images God, then how did God work? God's design for work was that he went into the wild wastelands, the tohu vavohu, the darkness and the void and the emptiness, and he created order and beauty and called that process of bringing order and beauty out of the wild wastelands good. And he used it seven times and on the seventh time he said, this is very good. And so if this is God's design for work, how he did it, then that should be how we do it. Our work, whatever it is. And maybe just giving you a hint of next week, uh, I couldn't help. I've been studying Colossians and there's a very specific verse in Colossians 3 that says who we actually are working for and that what, what, what is the kind of work, the kind of job that uh, Jesus condones. And just hinting at it, all work. All work that brings dignity, that doesn't dehumanize others. Um, there isn't a special work that Jesus considers sacred and everything else is just a waste. Um, so whatever your particular job is, Whatever your particular uh, career or uh, many of you own businesses or run businesses. Um, Some of you are in the process of getting back to work. Many of you are in a process of being retired from work and there's still work for you. If you stop working, even if you stop a career, if you stop working, you're on the fast track to death. So even if you retire from a job, you don't need to stop working because there's still purpose for your life. And the purpose is not for just an eternal vacation. Though more vacations in retirement, it's like you earned it, okay? That's good. Just as the rest of your life is not a vacation because I'm telling you, 
and it's scriptural and it's, it's, there's lots of data. You're on a downhill slope really quick, so don't do that. So I want you to see that purpose and that purpose in whatever particular job it is, we go into wild and waste, formless and void, and we bring order and beauty. That's work. And that's work as God designed it. Now, jumping into Genesis 2, this fleshes this out a little bit. Uh, And so we'll look at Genesis 2 and kind of seeing how this design comes out with a little more, uh, some less less principle, more tangible. Uh, I'll start in verse 5. Genesis 2, verse 5. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and... There was no man, no human, to work the ground. So God designed earth to need work. To need humans working. God designed this work. So work is not something after the fall. It's before then. Verse 6. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then... The Lord God formed the man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. Lots could be said from this verse, but the word formed there is the same word used for what a potter uh, does in pottery form. So you can look at Jeremiah, I think it's chapter 18 uh, it talks about uh, God takes Jeremiah to a potter's, uh, uh, like, a, like a, a pottery uh, place, not pottery barn, that's for kids. Um, that, that was what was coming to my head. Um, uh, and he says, do you, like, it's the potter who forms, forms the clay into whatever vessel he sees fit. Uh, and so God formed, he, he shaped and formed, um, the, the Hebrew word for dust is... Uh, Adamah, Adam, uh, Adamah, uh, and uh, the breath of God, and he became Adam, a, like, a du- like dust, he's a dustling, like an earthling, <laughs> God formed an earthling, is what the, the, those words are, Adam, human, uh, but he also infused this dustling with the breath of God, and so in humans, there is both earth and heaven, In the image of God, there is both dust and breath, spirit. God's God's life-giving spirit, breath and spirit are the same uh, Hebrew word, ruach. There's a clearing your throat that I've been practicing and I'm not succeeding very well. Um, So so like like the, the way humans are going to be requires for them to be above the animals who were also formed on the same day, a bit of the breath of God. A connection to divine breath. And the Lord God, verse 8, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden. So who was the first gardener in scripture? God was. In the east and there he put Adam, whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree. Trees play a very important role important role, not just in this story, but the biblical story. And so the author is whispering to you again, hey, there's more trees. Trees are important. But look at this. Instead of it just saying, remember in chapter one, it was just fruit trees. 
And the author was trying to give you hint. Fruit trees are going to play an important role. But look at this. This is interesting. Uh, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Just really pretty trees. Like, (laughs) I've struggled. We live in a world that's very pragmatic. And uh, we want things to be practical, useful. And so we build things and do things that are useful and pragmatic. And though I believe in things being practical and pragmatic, um, if you just go with usefulness, you have something that's very ugly. That there's no usefulness to a sunrise. But what would life be without that beauty? That there's... There's purpose in something have no pragmatic value other than to be beautiful. That there's, God has purpose for things that their sole use is just to be admired. And, and churches used, used to really, really understand this. Uh, and it's been my concern that we, in the last uh, 40, 50 years... Because we do have a a real understanding, and this is true, that the church is not the building. That's real. That's true. Very much so. And so uh, we took that and we said, well, we need everything to be practical and cheap. (laughs) Because churches are cheap. Uh, And so we just put up these metal boxes and said, like, church of whatever on it. And it's very useful and pragmatic, and you can use all the square footage uh, and all of that. And it's affordable and all that. And and again, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Um, But but it's ugly. And the way churches used to be when they would construct cathedrals, and I, I get there's extremes of this on both ends, so I'm not necessarily advocating for us to go back to like the medieval period. But, but the design of cathedrals was to evoke such a sense of beauty that you felt like you were in heaven. They were built tall, not because they're trying to impose themselves on the landscape. They're built tall so that the first thing you did when you came into the building is you look up. Why? Because we're looking to the Lord. And so I, I, I hope that there is a revival of just beautiful architecture again. That not everything is about pragmatic value. <laughs> I'm seeing this a little bit more when I see more parks and uh, not as many parking lots. And the parking lots aren't just like boxes with lines. There's actually landscaping and stuff. Okay, that was a point that I shouldn't have gone too far in. There is intrinsic value for something that has no pragmatic value. That beauty is its sole purpose. All right. And good for food. (laughs) The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're just little hinting at this is important. Verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden. So what's the picture being painted for us? That God, and and this is, if, if this, it requires a little bit of scholarly reading, but um, what, what's implied here, uh, and if you compare it to other Near Eastern uh, writings, there's this idea that there's a cosmic mountain, uh, and that Eden is like a, a garden mountain temple, 
that it's, it's, it's like, a, it's like where, where, where heaven and earth come together. So there's this idea that it's a high mountain. And where heaven touches earth, there's this garden. And that's where God forms man and forms him from the dust of the earth, but also infuses him with divine breath. And a river flows out. And then the next couple of verses talk about four rivers and then all the different things that come, diamonds and gold and all this kind of stuff. What is this idea? It's this idea that at this touching point of heaven and earth, the Garden of Eden... Um, God creates man and forms man to be in that garden, but a river's flowing out, implying that there is tohu vavohu, wild wastelands, out from there, and we're to take the garden, this connection of heaven and earth, and spread it into the rest of creation. That's the picture being painted for us. We've got to speed up. Verse 15. The Lord God took the Adam, the man, And put him in the Garden of Eden to do what? Work it and keep it. Who has kind of an older Bible that says till it? Till it. Nobody? Okay, all right. We're graduating from King Jimmy to something else. Um, That word work there, it's not the exact same word we saw earlier in Genesis 2 where God worked. Um, This isn't just the idea of work. It actually... Is, uh, it's an agricultural word. It means to till the ground. It means to, to take the ground and turn it into something. It's to work it, to till it, to, to uh, uh, care for it, to nourish it in such a way that it yields a greater harvest. Because dirt can just be dirt, or you can till it and turn it into soil that yields a harvest. That's the word used here. And then the word keep is also an interesting word. It's a Hebrew word, shamar, shamar. And that word is used for numerous different purposes. The etymology of that word goes back to what a shepherd does over their sheep. A shepherd shamars their sheep. Well, what does that mean, keeping it? Does that mean just keep them alive? Well, yes. <laughs> I mean, it means that. But not just that. It means to guard it or protect it to watch over it, to nourish it, to care for it, to move it, to move the flock in the direction of provision. That word is used for watchmen who are on the wall, who watch over the city. They shamar over the city. Does that mean they just look for enemies? No, not just that. It's more than that. There's a sense of responsibility for the city to protect it, and so they're watching, they're paying attention. It's a word used for keeping the commandments. It isn't just a word for obeying the rules. It's a word used to pay attention to the commandments, to watch over them, to guard your life around them, to be nourished by them. That, 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 it's a word used for so many purposes. I think in the notes, if you're on the notes on the app, uh, there's, uh, I think I put like 10 references of how it's used in scripture for various things. Um, well, that word shamar It's all packed into that word, this idea of keeping, guarding, protecting, nourishing, um, paying close attention to. So, So here's where the design for God's work now gets put to action. So it's not just this idea of working, this principle of going into the wild wastelands and creating order and beauty. What does that mean? It means to to till the ground, to take the raw potential of something and work it, and not just to enslave it, but to care for it. This would be the, the, the way we would understand subdue. 
in Genesis 1.28. Subdue sounds like to enslave something or someone. But if you, if you connect it to this idea that we till and keep, we work and we keep something, it's, we would do that with our children. We wouldn't enslave our children, but in keeping them, we also want them to keep the rules. Why? Because we see there's raw potential in them. And we work that ground of their heart through discipline and a lot of love. <laughs> we keep them not by making sure we guard them from outside invaders, but we keep their hearts by nourishing what's inside of them. If you're in sales, you're working the ground of customers and clients, but you do it with a care and attention to it. You pay attention. So in sales, you pay attention to what your customer or client needs, and you tend to that. You keep it. You pay close attention and make sure what you do and what you're selling is meeting that need. In owning a business, you, you see, how do I work and keep my community? How do I work and keep my job in my community? That my, my business is a source of life to my community because I'm paying attention to the needs of the market and not just through an economic lens, through a caring and a keeping, guarding it, protecting it. Again, in sales, there's many, there's many companies like uh, insurance. I know, a lot of, I know a lot of insurance agents. Um, that, that you have numerous products and some of them are very good and very important and some of them have no value. They're schemes. And you might yield a high return from these schemes, but it doesn't add any value to the customer. And so what does that look like? It looks like working the ground of the customer Tilling the ground, making sure, and keeping, understand their needs, and making sure that they have the products that are needed, and the ones that you know are just for selfish gain, you don't even mention. And your boss might get on you, you need to be pushing this product more. And you know that that would be violating something, because that's not keeping or caring for your customer. Are you with me? Like, I can, I can, we can go through a few dozen, but you wouldn't want to be here uh, if I go through more examples. But it's that framework. So this is the whole framework, okay? Now... Next verse, verse 16. And the Lord God commanded, commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There's a few layers here that honestly I'm still meditating on and there's numerous implications Trying to keep it in the framework of work. Um, when it comes to eating, eating is the result of our labor, right? Like we labor, um, if, you're, if you're in gardening, you labor, you, you work the soil, you till it, you keep it, and you get the fruit and you eat of that. You eat of that fruit. So you get to receive the fruits of your labor. And the idea from Genesis 1 is that if you can garden well, you have an abundance that is for sharing. Okay, so, so eating has something, some connection with eating the fruits of your labor or receiving the fruits of your labor. Okay, and he says you can eat of every tree. But this one tree, you shall not eat of it. Now is this God like, kind of being stuck up a little bit, like a little bit of a legalist. 
here. Like, you're being a little bit of a legalist, Lord. Um, there's, there's way more symbols here than what we, we see in the obvious. If you think about it, I think I put it as a point slide. Um, work is where humans exercise moral judgment. Okay? So uh, the word uh, here, uh, good and evil, I think I said this last week. Uh, maybe there was three services. I said it at least in one service. If it wasn't you, you're just going to get it second round. Um, the word evil there, we hear in English as like a moral evil. Like something is morally evil. And it includes that, but it is not exclusive to that. Um, that word there, Hebrew, is just raw. Raw. Tov, good, raw, evil. And honestly, you can just say bad. Good and not good. Good and bad. There's, no necessarily, Sarah, there's not necessarily a moral implication here. So it's just good and not good. Well, where, work is the place where we're constantly making decisions about what's good and not good. Where we're having to exercise moral judgment. What's good and what's not good. If I'm, if I'm looking at, uh, you know, like gardening here, uh, I, I got I to make decisions about what's good and not good for the soil. And then I have to make decisions about what's good and not good for my community. That if, I have, if my garden only goes to a certain point, that I have to see what's good and not good on my neighbor's boundary, on the other side of my boundary line. And I have to decide what is good. Well, is good, like, it might be of benefit to me for me to kind of encroach on my neighbor's land a little bit. That's not good. But who says so? So here, what, what's, what's symbolized here, how are we going to exercise our moral judgment? See, God is giving humans the dignity and the freedom to exercise moral judgment and move towards moral maturity. Because the knowledge of good and evil isn't just about an awareness of good or information. We think of knowledge and we make it synonymous with information because we live in an information age. Knowledge is more about the way I discern it, discerning good and evil. Mankind is given the dignity and the freedom to decide how will they exercise this moral judgment. Will they trust God's definition of good and not good? And therefore not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Or will they seize autonomy? Will they, will they seize the knowledge for themselves? Take of the fruit. And eat. Eat the fruit of a labor that was about seizing. Will I seize that? Will I decide what is good and not good for myself? Who's God to tell me what's good and not good? Because it might be good for me to, encro- to, to, to slowly move the boundary marker of my property and encroach on my neighbor's property. No one will see it. No one will know it. There's actually two commandments, two separate commandments in the Torah that says do not move the ancient boundary mark. There's one of them is in Proverbs and one of them is in the law. Don't move the ancient boundary mark. Why? Because that's exactly what we would do if we think we could get away with it. I need, my, my plot of land doesn't yield enough harvest and so I'll swindle my neighbor into getting their land. That's good for me. That's not good for them, but I'm not responsible for them. 
uh, uh, keep uh, Shamar. Uh, God asks Cain, where is your brother? And he says, am I my neighbor's, or am I my brother's Shamar? Am I my brother's keeper? I'm not my, I'm not my brother's keeper. It's their fault that they fell for my trick. Which tree are we reaching for? And nearly every day you go to work, you're exercising at some level moral judgment. What's good and not good. And, well, I mean, not just even at your work, in your family. Dear Lord, this is, it's exhausting raising children. (laughs) Got a couple amens there. Um, Grandparents, like, you're riding easy now. Unless you're raising your grandkids, then that's, you get, you get it. It's exhausting. You have to make decisions constantly of what's good and not good for them. And they have no clue. So they're asking about, like, why is it that the only thing they really want to do is what's not good? I don't know. So it's a, it's, these are gardens that we have to work and keep, but we have to discern what is good and not good for it. To do that, we need wisdom. What scriptures call Chokmah. You need wisdom to understand how to work the ground and to keep it. How to decide what's, how to discern what's good and not good. And the only way to do that, what Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, is to walk in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One, that's understanding. Knowledge of good and not good is not understanding. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And when we walk in the fear of the Lord, we receive chokmah, wisdom, so that when we, in in knowing him, understand what is good and not good. Even when it looks like, according to the world standards, that doing what God says is good, looks like it's not good for me. And you'll do this at work all the time. And that's why we're in a mess is because which tree did we reach for? <laughs> How, this is okay, so like the good times are rolling here, right? We're Genesis 2, it's a garden, we're naked, it's awesome. <laughs> we can eat of any tree, except one. All we gotta do is we gotta work and keep and, you know, we've already been told be fruitful and multiply, so it's like, anyway, <laughs> I'm running out of time. Genesis 3, verse 1. The good times roll for like a page here. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not? Is God holding out on you? Now let's just, oh man. I told you, the whole Bible is in Genesis 1 through 3. Listen, we can't have such a modern arrogance like <laughs> those, those poor ancient people thinking that snakes talk. <laughs> How, how simple of them. Listen, three, it was about 30, 3,500 years ago is when these, pages, when these words were written. They knew good and well snakes don't talk. So what, what, what is being said here? What's being said is that some creature is under the influence of some outside force. What is that outside force? If you keep reading in the scripture, you start seeing that there is an entity of pure evil that is a creature made of God in rebellion 
and whose purpose seems to be to lead others in rebellion. So they know good and well. Something really strange is happening here. And it's a force that is, seems bent on leading humans in rebellion. Evil. Not good. Raw. So, well, he doesn't just, is, is this cre- does this creature intimidate God? No. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I do ask like rhetorical or trick questions sometimes, so sorry for setting you up there. Like the answer is no. <laughs> this creature is in, like is not made God wring his hands or bite his fingernails. And so he tries to deceive the humans thinking that God is holding out on him. Actually, God said you can eat all the trees except that one. Fast forwarding the story, look at verse six. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. I can discern. I will be wise to decide for myself what is good and not good. I can do it. And she took and ate. That, that, that becomes a design pattern in your scripture where when people take, it's bad. Um, Sarah took Hagar and gave her to Abraham. It's the same, same phrase. That's, that's scripture's way of cluing you in. Bad things are about to happen. Israel took Saul and gave him for king, for a king. It's the same design pattern there. So things happen when they take and eat. What happens? Bad stuff. Look at verse 17 of Genesis 3. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. He didn't curse Adam. He cursed the ground. Now, just so you see biblical connections, what was humans made of? Dust, dirt, the ground. So there is a part of our body that participates in the curse of, that's on creation. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, what, what was he supposed to do with the ground? Work it and keep it. But now there's resistance in your work. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now is mankind still able to eat? Yes, three times. It says you shall eat, you shall eat, you shall eat. So there is a sense where you can still receive the fruits of your labor, but now the environment has changed. The environment of your work has made, been made more difficult by sin. 
that this isn't like the origin stories of thorns and thistles. <laughs> I mean, you could, you could take it that way. Um, I, I, anytime my son gets, you know, hit, like scratched by a thorn, I'm like, man, blame Adam for that. Sorry. It's not really the origin story of thorns and thistles. Now, again, if we're, if we're taking this in its, in its larger context, the ground is our work that we're to till and to, uh, to work it, uh, to keep it, to care for it. That now there's resistance. There's resistance in that. That we're working against the ground in some ways. We're working against the environment. The environment is against us because of sin. My own sin, my own stupidity, my own ability, my own inability to discern good and not good. And then in an environment where there's other humans who are having to discern what is good and not good and doing a poor job at that. Yes, we're still to work and we're to work and to keep it, but now it is far more difficult. It's hard. It requires sweat. And, you know, there's, there's massive amounts of, of jobs and an information technology that are more what we would call white-collar jobs. And it's good for anyone who works in what's called knowledge work or like you, you work mostly with your brain. It's good for you to get out in the dirt and get dirty and work hard and sweat. Um, that There's dignity in what would be called blue-collar work. There's dignity in that. But it's hard. Work is hard. So just a side point about work. If your job is hard, it doesn't mean you're in the wrong. It doesn't mean you're out of God's will because it's hard. It's just that we live in a world where there's sin and you and me and everybody around us make really poor choices. And there's things out of our control because, because the earth is cursed. There are things like natural disasters that are not acts of God, like God is constructing earthquakes and tsunamis and pandemics. And it's, just, it's, it's a part of a, a, a ground that is cursed. It's part of a, a, an earth that is still under the curse of the fall. That Paul says in Romans 8 that even the creation itself is groaning and longing and hungering for the revelation of the sons of God. For new creation. The ground is hungering for it. And so our work is both in a Genesis 1 and 2 context where we're to go into the wild wastelands, the formless and void, and bring order and beauty and work and keep Shamar, take care of, pay attention to, and we're laboring in an environment full of sin. It's hard. And so our work is the place where we have to remain under the authority of God in humble submission and in constant guidance because you're not so smart that God speaks to you once and then doesn't have to say anything else. <laughs> but the constant guidance and leadership of the Holy Spirit to be able to go into the wild wastelands and other people are full of sin and bring order and beauty. But recognize that that's going to be hard. And that just because it's hard doesn't mean that you get to give up quickly and easily. That there is, there's a design for work to bring order and beauty into the wild wastelands, to work and to keep but there's also a ruin of work, that it's, it's difficult, it's hard. Is there hope for the redemption of work? And if you fast forward to the end, I told you, we just fast forward through the whole, like, look at all that ground we cover. 
At the very end, just a couple quick passages, just so you can see it. It's all I want. You, I don't have to. I don't want to explain it because it's a lot. But just see it. Revelation twenty-one. So this is the end of the story. Remember, the story began in the beginning, right? So what story did we see at the beginning? God's working. He makes mankind to work. Go to the wild wastelands and bring order and beauty and work it and keep it. Sin ruined it. But then you go to the end. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And God's not trashing the current heavens and earth. He's transforming the current heaven and earth into new heavens and new earth. For the first and earth, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away or been transformed. You've got to read 1 Corinthians 15, which I think I'll get to next week. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Which direction are things moving? Up or down? What's up there is coming down here. So us trying to get from down here to up there is like kind of an exercise in futility. Because God's trying to get what's up there down there and then we're working against him trying to get up there. Coming down out of heaven prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. In scripture... What is the bride? The church. This is people. The city is people. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. We're trying to get up to the dwelling place of God, and God's dwelling place is trying to come down here. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. It's one of my favorite phrases in all of scripture. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Verse five, and he who is seated on the throne, the one in charge of all of this says, what does he say? Behold, I am making, how many things? All things new. All things new. What's God doing? Making all things new. And he's not waiting for the end. He, started, he inaugurated it in Christ Jesus. Look at chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. River, remember, river. Bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God. From, so where is it, where is it originating? From the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. It'd be worth probably doing a whole series on understanding trees and the tree of life. If you just take Ezekiel 47 plus Psalm 1 and a whole lot of Jesus in there and you recognize we are the trees. Jeremiah 17 also. We're the trees. The tree, that's us. With its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month, the leaves of the tree were for what purpose? The healing of the nations. Behold, I'm making all things new. A river's flowing out, and mankind is to work and keep the garden city, the garden city, and take it where? The nations. For what purpose? Beauty, order, good. 
No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for they, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So how does the story end? With a new garden city, a people who no longer think it's wise to discern good and evil for ourselves, but in complete surrender to the Lamb of God, live in the river of God's life, the Holy Spirit, flowing out to the tohu vavohu and bring order and beauty, healing for the nations. And in Christ, we don't wait for the end to start that project. It's been inaugurated in Christ Jesus. Because out of our lives flow rivers of living water. The Holy Spirit. So what are we doing? We go into the nations and bring healing. Oh, well, there's still sin in the nations. That's not been, that we're not, we've not hit total resurrection yet. So the environment's going to be very difficult. But what are we to do? We're to go work and keep it. We're to go Bring little heavens into any earth pockets that we can find ourselves into. That you as an educator go into the tohu vavahu of public school elementary and you bring order and beauty and healing in that little pocket of earth. You bring heaven to earth in your little, your little pocket of earth. And we, the city of God begin to work in unison and our work overflows. The fruits of our labor aren't just for us, they're for each other that sometimes look like finances and caring for those who are out of work and sometimes it looks like praying for the sick and they recover, bringing healing. Sometimes it looks like being a listening ear, going into the tohu vavohu of someone's brokenness and bringing healing by being a listening ear, a vessel of Christ. Working and keeping that, guarding that person, caring for them. Your work matters. It matters in God's grand story that's going to end with a garden city and new heavens and new earth. And we just live that future in the present in our day jobs. Like every single day at your work, except for tomorrow. Tomorrow you get a day off. Every single day at your work, you're, you're, you're in a tohu vavohu, and by the wisdom of God, remember you have the mind of Christ. By the wisdom of God, you have access to the wisdom of God. You go into that ground, and you work it, and you keep it. And out of that work and that keep come the fruit of your labors that you receive from and is for sharing and some of those fruits are for the healing of the nations. The church has a mission and it ain't just to save souls for another time and place. It's to see people's lives that have been ruined by sin healed and restored so that as restored image bearers 
we be witnesses of Jesus. Not just trying to, quote, get people saved, but bringing new creation into the broken world. Is it hard? Yeah. It's probably going to cost you your life. Because not everybody appreciates that. And pretty much a whole lot of Christian history has been a whole lot of the world not appreciating the church very much and killing us. That's possible. But what's equally possible is revival. And it's not just a, more church services. Revival doesn't have to look like more church services. I kind of hope it doesn't. <laughs> what I do hope is that your workplace is revival. That like, like you don't just wait for revival at evening services or Sunday morning. That like, you know, Tuesday morning on a sales call, there's revival there. And I believe that's possible. That's just a good place to end. Would you just stand with me?